following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, welcome this evening. Glad that you're able to join us tonight. We are here to worship our Lord and to hear from His Word, which is also another form of worship. So, we have our scripture reading in First Chronicles. If you would turn back over there, First Chronicles chapter twenty-two. We're getting through here. First Chronicles. We have to get to twenty-nine, but it's coming along. So, last time you remember, David wanted the people to be counted. That was a sin of pride. And uh, that was a costly one. Leaders, leaders have uh, an outsized uh, or disproportionate effect on their nations, don't they? One man, yet uh, it's not like one man, one vote in this sense that uh, our president or the king of the nation can have a very good or very detrimental effect disproportionate to his size or importance as an individual, but rather in his office. First uh, Chronicles 22, uh, we shift gears entirely, and David prepares uh, materials for the temple. And it says in chapter 22, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints and bronze in abundance beyond measure and cedar trees in abundance for the Sidonians and those from Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, And I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper, and build the house of the Lord your God, as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. May I pause and ask you to remember, what was it that Solomon prayed for? His father said, only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding. He was following the ways of his father and asking his God for that, wasn't he, in in the Kings and later in the Chronicles. Verse 13, then you will prosper if you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments with which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Indeed, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord 
100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond measure, for it is so abundant. I have prepared timber and stone also that you may add to them. Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, woodsmen and stonecutters and all types of skillful men for every kind of work. Of gold and silver and bronze and iron, there is no limit. Arise and begin working, and the Lord be with you. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon, his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Therefore arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. Well, God does not dwell in temples made with hands, but he was pleased to make a special manifestation of his presence dwell there in Jerusalem uh, as he had instructed David and then Solomon, of course. Okay. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 13 this evening. I'll just spend a few more minutes with you in this chapter, which may have puzzled you from time to time. Matthew chapter 13. The opening verses of Matthew 13 introduce us to the Lord's teaching a parable for the first time. We might say for the second time if we count the parable in, in chapter 12, 43 to 45, or the story as a parable. It sort of is. But this is in more an extended uh, story with a point. In verses 1 through 9, we saw this is uh, the parable of the soils. The sower goes out to sow. He finds a number of different kinds of soil, which represent the condition of people's hearts, uh, minds, inner lives, if you will, and the, some of the seed that he casts uh, grows, meaning the word of the kingdom finds root, and it has an effect in the life of the person who hears. But that's only on one of the types of soil. The other three types of soil are hard or choked out or rocky or trampled upon or the birds come and eat up the seed, meaning that no fruit comes out of it, and so it does not show a true fruitful kind of life. So the Lord tells that parable, and then after he does that, the disciples come to him in verse 10 and say, Uh, to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And the Lord had a purpose in doing this. He didn't just do it accidentally. He did it on purpose and intention. And that intention was, as he says in verse 11, I'll continue reading here. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him more will be given, and he who He will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, and this just kind of explains what we just read, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, 
the understanding there is, blessed are your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then he goes on, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. And so he explains it kindly to them so that they could understand it even better than they would have before. And uh, we'll see that that's an important feature of the future ministry of the Lord and teaching of the parables. We saw that the word parable last time we studied together was on Wednesday. Uh, We saw that it talks about a narrative or saying of varying length that's used to illustrate a point. It's a, uh, or a a truth. It's It's a story with a point. And it's given in, um, like, you could say, analogous language, uh, something like that, a comparison or a simile or a metaphor to try to get across the truth. Sometimes that's the best way to help somebody understand a spiritual truth is to tell them, give them an illustration or a, um, uh, an explanation in terms of a metaphor or something so they kind of get the idea without you know, kind of going to the blackboard and spelling it out, you know, point one, one A, one B, one C, two, two A, two B, two C, uh, give them that, that story and they know then uh, what it's like. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like, uh, well, trying to explain to somebody how a particular food tastes. It's much easier to just give them the food and, hey, take a little taste of it. Now do you know, you know, tasting is worth a thousand words, you could say, like a picture is worth a thousand words. The, the parable is a teaching tool. It's an indirect tool. It's a tool that engages the mind of the hearer if he so cares to be engaged. And for those that do not care to be engaged, it uh, passes over their minds without sinking in. I'm glad that the Lord explained a number of the parables to give us a pattern. He doesn't explain all of them. It's kind of like in school when, you know, you begin an exercise uh, of a certain sort in English class or, say, math class, and the teacher kind of works a problem with you, kind of shows you how to do it, and then works a couple with you on the board, and then, you know, then you're on your own. You, you don't get the answer key after that. You have to do the, the problems yourself and, uh, and see how you do. So uh, that's what the Lord is doing here with these, with these parables. He gives some explanation on a, on a few of them, but in other ones he leaves for us to um, puzzle through, if you will, or think through carefully and figure out. The word parable is used in the New Testament only in the synoptic gospels. You know what the synoptic gospels are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, just those three, not John. John's a little different in character, so he doesn't get kind of collected together with the synoptics, although he is also a gospel in, this, in that sense, uh, teaching of the Lord's life and ministry. Um, and why is the Lord doing this? Well, the context of Matthew is here at a hinge point. People have rejected Jesus. He's now going to turn to focus on his disciples, uh, particularly the 12, 11, as I always have to say, and then but also others who are following him in his ministry. We don't know so much about those others, do we? But I believe there were many because we see in the book of Acts uh, in the upper room prayer meeting how many people, you remember? Not 12, but anybody happen to remember that number? you have a guess? Somebody's going to look it up. Anybody else? 
Somebody said 200. That doesn't ring a bell with me. It's actually lower than that. Do you know, Daniel? Your steel trap of a memory did not capture that data, huh? Did you find it, Naomi? I'll put you on the spot so you'll remember this next time. Are you in John 13 or in Acts? Yeah, you should be in Acts. Well, on the first, the first uh, day uh, when Peter preached, then 3,000 were added to their number, right? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's, that's in response to your, your 2,000. Um, let's see, where is that? Acts 1.15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. 120. So 12 times 10. So there were more followers of Jesus than just the 12 apostles, the 11 again. Um, And from those, actually, they uh, chose another one to take the office of Judas, who fell by transgression and was the son of perdition. And uh, that was down in Acts chapter uh, 126. They, they used the, me- the method of casting lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles and became the 12th. And then, of course, you know, the apostle Paul was the baker's dozen. He was the 13th, and uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, as I called him before, the primary exponent of the Gentiles uh, for the gospel or Gentile uh, messenger for the gospel, but obviously he's a Jew, and Peter was the Jewish exponent for the gospel, wasn't he, the the apostle to the Jews? But in any case, um, so we have more than just the 12, and the Lord is focusing on teaching them and helping them to to develop, and he's developing new leaders that will take over for the ministry once he leaves. And um, But the people in Israel had rejected their king, they had rejected the word of God for them. They'd rejected the miracles. They rejected the testimony of John the Baptist, uh, the self-testimony of Jesus, and the miracles. Did I say that already? Anyway, they, they rejected all of that. And so now the Lord is turning attention in another direction. This is a, this is a serious movement of the Lord. This is not just like, oh, that's interesting. This is something very serious. They were committing the unpardonable sin They were denying the Lord his rightful place as their king, as their prophet and priest, and Jesus was turning away from them in judgment. Let me give you a couple of thoughts on this and then several principles we can glean from this passage, and then we'll close with a comment on preaching the parables in a kind of expositional manner. Uh, the disciples asked explicitly the reason why, or why are you teaching like this? This initially mystified them because they said, well, it seems like there'd be a more clear way to teach these folks. Why are you doing it this way? You know, can't you lay it out kind of like I said on the blackboard, you know, on the chalkboard and give it to them straight? And he says, I'm doing this because two things. It's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. So there's two reasons why he's speaking this, two clear reasons. 
This special teaching method is used to accomplish at one time two separate things. God is wise like that. He can do that. And we learn from him how he has done that work. So he wants to show his followers truth about the kingdom. What's the truth that we learned about the kingdom here? Well, it's going to go through a phase of there being messengers who will share the word of the kingdom. And they will not go out by sword and whack people into bits if they don't listen. They're going to be casting the seed, the message of the kingdom, on just like Jesus and John the Baptist did, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and see who responds. And there will be a season of growing and a season of fruit bearing. And as we know, that season has lasted us now for nearly 2,000 years. It seems like it's going on, you know, from our perspective, too long. But we're just part of the, the uh, ongoing humanity that God has put on this earth. And, you know, to God, a couple thousand years is not too much time at all. It's just a couple of days. Even though we look at the passing of generations and the grief of one generation going and the joy of another generation coming and we say we don't feel a whole lot of continuity between us and them back there, although we have perfect continuity with them because of the word that we're sharing, the same word. And so, uh, you know, there's going to be the season of planting, the season of fruit bearing. The fruit bearing is going to include more planting, and it's just going to go on like that. And we'll learn from the other parables that the point is that the, the kingdom message is going to start out small, it's going to be restricted, it's going to be persecuted, as we saw from some of the other sections in Matthew's gospel already, and it's going to grow. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, like the mustard seed parable, until this kingdom fills the earth. Now, it's not going to do that on its own. It's going to require the Lord's return, which we'll see also in some of the teachings later on of the Lord and the gospels. But... It reveals truth about the kingdom. And at the same time, it hides that truth from unbelievers. You can remember it as the, as the saying goes that parables both reveal and conceal. They reveal truth to believers and they conceal truth from unbelievers. And in that they conceal, they are a judgment. In that they reveal, they are a blessing. Okay, So this is, a, this is in part a sign of judgment from God. We looked at last time the truth content revealed in the parables having to do with the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And that phrase may uh, throw you for a loop, the mysteries uh, of the kingdom of heaven, verse 11. It's in the middle of the verse there. But I don't want it to do that. It's not meant to do that. A mystery in the Bible is something that was unknown not disclosed by God, and now it has been disclosed. It's something that cannot be known by the mind of man except through divine revelation. Let me, uh, let me illustrate it for a moment this way. Do you understand how electricity works? Some of you do, you engineer types. Some of you are like, I have no idea. Um, it's kind of a mystery, isn't it? <clears throat> But you don't need God to reveal to you the mystery of electricity. You can study it. You can hire a teacher. You can go to school. You can read books. You can practice, you know, with electrical circuits in your, you know, um, project kit that you can buy online. And you can learn about electricity. That's different than the kind of mystery we're talking about here. 
the kind of mystery we're talking about here is a mystery which cannot be learned by hiring a human teacher, buying a human book, practicing with an electronic project kit you get on Amazon or whatever. This kind of mystery is a mystery which has to be disclosed by God from heaven. Okay, Of, of the things that we know in the scriptures, like let's just pick a few. I mean, even historical events. We would hardly know of these historical events unless God had decided to disclose them. And that's even not really the kind of mystery that I'm talking about. I mean, think who would believe that the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry ground unless it was written in here? Who? No, it would just be nothing more than a myth or a legend if, you know, somehow it had been passed on from generation to generation among the Jews and Gentiles would have no clue or they wouldn't believe it at all. But then there are the, um, the, the promises of God that aren't historical events, but prophetic events or things that have meaning that could never be understood through mere history or scientific inquiry. Um, like what, for example? The meaning of the Old Testament sacrifices or um, the presence of God in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament or... Uh, the prophet, the prophetic uh, words about Jesus, that God will raise up a prophet, a priest, a king. We would never know these things unless God said them. And there are many other things that are like that. Let me share with you a couple of them, uh, just to pause and think about this idea of, of mystery. And the first one is in Ephesians 3. I mentioned this one before, but we'll touch on it just now and read it. In Ephesians 3, 3, it says this, uh, How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, Paul says, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. There, Paul is saying, look, it wasn't known before. That's the mystery part of it. But the other side of the mystery is that it is now revealed. And here it is, verse 6, namely, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. I've written on this briefly because people, people get very confused by these things. I mean, some would say, well, the, the Old Testament always talked about Gentiles. Yes, but be more precise. What did it say? It said things like the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles, but it never said that Gentiles would be joined with Jews in one body, which is the church. That is a truth which would, uh, would flabbergast any faithful Jew in the Old Testament times. They would be shocked. Their jaw would hit the floor. They would have no clue that that's what God was saying. They, oh, that's nice. God's going to help the Gentiles. Now, he's actually going to help them in conjunction with you. And in fact, we'll see later in another mystery passage something else that God's going to do or has done with the Gentiles. So that's one, one kind of mystery. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 6.19, and we'll see. Paul says, And for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel. Okay, so there was certainly good news uh, hidden away in the Old Testament, but not exactly like what Paul is 
revealing here, the mystery of the gospel, Jews and Gentiles together. How about uh, back up a book uh, to a couple books to Romans 11.25. Romans 11.25, again talking about this idea of mystery, something that we cannot know apart from divine revelation, God disclosing it from heaven. He says in Romans 11.25, For I do not desire, brothers, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. This mystery, he said, didn't he? That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. That's very interesting, isn't it? The mystery is what? That blindness will happen to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Again, a Jew in the Old Testament, or even in the first century, would be flabbergasted. Uh, he would be, what's the word today? Gobsmacked that this was the case, that they were going to be set aside and uh, blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles had come in. Yes, that, that mysterious part of it is that they, they had no clue, but God demonstrated it through revelation that that would be what was going to occur. I think you're getting the point. Uh, let's look at Colossians 1. Um, Oh, no, I skipped one, actually. Sorry. Uh, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is a nice one. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, I hope you remember. 1 Corinthians 15 and 51, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So he's talking about the rapture of the church. That's a mystery previously undisclosed, now made known. Now Colossians 1. Colossians 1.26. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, in Acts chapter 11, after Peter went to the Gentiles, Cornelius and his bunch came back and reported to his Jewish brothers, and they were like, wow, so God has given faith to the Gentiles too. Amazing. Yes. Um, Colossians uh, Colossians 1, 26 and 27. The mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. <clears throat> uh, let's see, what else do we have? Colossians 2, 2 says that their hearts may be encouraged, uh, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Now, all these mysteries don't all have to do with the same exact topic. This is, this is alluding to a new, a new, a different mystery here. The mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now hold on to that thought for a moment. We'll, we'll come back to that. 2 Thessalonians 2, 6. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 6. 
And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth. And so the mystery of lawlessness, speaking of the Antichrist and this Kind of, you know, way back hundreds and hundreds of years ago, or to more than thousands, more than, you know, before the New Testament was written, thousands of years ago, this was not known that this mystery of lawlessness would kind of come upon the world and there would be a work of the Holy Spirit restraining until He lets go and, and, uh, you know, all of this breaks loose. Then 1st Timothy, please. 1st Timothy, we're going back to that thought about the mystery of God and of Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, or the mystery of God in a sense, the mystery of how godliness arises amongst God's people. And what is that? Here it is. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Isn't it a mystery how God was manifest in the flesh? Yeah, boy. I mean, talking to people who don't believe in the Trinity is a tough, tough job. They simply do not believe. I'm speaking to somebody right now in that very, um, in, in these days on that very subject. It's a great mystery. It's been revealed to us. We see it in the Scriptures but it's the mystery of God and Christ, Christ coming into the world. That is kind of mysterious, you know. It is amazing how that happened, but God's revealed it to us. It wasn't known in ages past, but now has become known to us. And then there's another one. I won't take us there, but it's in Revelation 17, uh, 7 through 18, and that is the one which perhaps in your Bible you remember reading where it says, Mystery, all capitals, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and all of that. I'm not so sure that the word mystery should be capitalized as part of the title. I think what John is being told is, this is a mystery, colon, Babylon the Great, and all of that. This is a mystery. And, and, then what, and the reason I think that is because as I looked at that again, a couple of verses later, the angel explains to John what the mystery is. And he explains to him about this, you know, Babylon and this, the sea, the peoples of the earth, and all the bad things that this city was leading the earth to do and so on. So we won't get into that any further. Uh, but the subject matter of these particular mysteries that we're talking about in Matthew is the mysteries of the kingdom, what's going to happen to it. Not its form, but its fate, the timing of it, what's going to happen in the meanwhile, to you know, when the Lord, when when the king leaves, you know, when the king leaves, there's no kingdom. Let's get that in our heads. There's no kingdom here now, but when he comes back, there will be. And so, in the meanwhile, what are we supposed to be doing? We're calling people to repent, telling them that there's a day appointed by God in which He will judge men by Jesus Christ, and He's given assurance of that by the resurrection of the dead, Christ being the first fruits of that resurrection, demonstrating His deity by all the things that He did, and so on. And so that's the mystery. Now, a couple of principles. Number one, the principle of increasing or decreasing revelation. Or maybe I should say it, increasing or decreasing understanding of revelation. Look at verse number 12. For whoever has, to him more will be given. 
okay? And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Okay, this is not saying that the rich are going to get richer and the poor are going to get poorer, okay? We, we look at that in isolation and we say, oh, you know, to whoever, whoever has and whoever does not have, and we automatically, this, kind of, this, this is a symptom of our materialism. We automatically think whoever has, oh, that must mean material possessions, and whoever does not have, that must mean uh, a lack of material possessions. That's not what this is talking about at all. This is talking about whoever has revelation from God, knowledge of these mysteries, and whoever does not have these things. Okay, so don't be thinking about, you know, I've got a full bank account and the interest is going to make it get bigger, or I have an empty bank account and I'm going to get less. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be emptied out and I'll be bankrupt. Think of a bank account full of divine revelation. Think of a bank account of your knowledge of that revelation. What do you have banked up? Are you adding to that account or are you ignoring what God has given and and that account is just decreasing and decreasing because inflation is eating it away? I use another monetary example. That's what the Lord says. Uh, Take heed to this principle. The person who has Knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven will gain more. That knowledge will produce a return on investment. That knowledge will grow, and it will grow, and it will grow. But he who does not have knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven or, or downplays that knowledge which he has obtained, it will, just, it will tend to evaporate. This is why we often say the spiritual life is not static. If it's static... It's by definition degrading because the sin nature and the world and time and just the the, the second law of thermodynamics in the spiritual realm just eat away at what you have. You have to keep adding, 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 adding. I encourage our boys to read the Bible. Keep reading it. Keep reading it because I know they might not understand this, but I know that if they're not adding, they're subtracting. It's crucial for your spiritual life. I know by personal experience and I know by divine revelation right here. If, it's, if you're static, you're actually not static, you're going backwards. If you're adding and adding, yes, you'll be going forward. And, the, and really the idea here is the responsiveness of your heart to that revelation. If you're, if you're positive toward it, then God is going to give you more. Your response to light, divine revelation, will determine your response to further Light. If, so the implications of this statement are huge. It's just one little verse in the Bible, but it's crucial for us. If you believe and thus have a certain amount of divine revelation, that knowledge can increase. It will not stay static, and that's what you should want. Believe what God has given you, and you will be given more. If you want more, do something with what you have already. You know, you say, I'm having trouble understanding it. I'm not there yet. Look, just do what you know already. Respond to what you know already in God's word. If any man wills to do his will, Jesus said, then he will know the doctrine, whether it's mine. But if you ignore the revelation of God, how do you expect him to give you more? How do you expect him to give you more? If you do not believe and do not have much or any revelation of God in your life, 
then even that information and its positive effects will degrade and become less and less. You might be an unbeliever with some biblical literacy, but no application of that Bible. But even that literacy will do you less and less good over the course of time. You've seen people, haven't you, who have maybe come to church for a while and it seems to be promising for them and then they go away and some years later you see their life and it's just nothing. It's, nothing's happened. It's just degraded or uh, they haven't made any progress at all. Depravity is not static. People get worse over time as they do not heed God's word. So that's one principle, increasing or decreasing revelation. Second principle, the principle of divine judgment, verses 13 to 15. Matthew records Jesus here speaking of the people of his generation using the words found in Isaiah 6. And I wish we had time to go look at Isaiah 6 in more detail but I'll just describe what's happening there. You remember Isaiah 6 in the year that King Uzziah died, remember? He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. He saw all this glorious manifestation of God who we find out in John chapter 12 is actually seeing a pre-incarnate Christ. And the angels are around the throne calling holy, holy, holy. And, and God, and of course, Isaiah sees himself. I mean, he looks at himself like I told you this morning. And he says, I'm nothing. In fact, I'm worse than nothing. I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord of hosts on top of that, so I'm, my goose is cooked. I'm finished. And the Lord cleanses him. And then he says this. He says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Remember that? And you remember Isaiah's response, don't you? I'll go. Here am I. Send me. Send me. Now, he didn't know what he was getting into, but the Lord shortly told him what he was getting into. He was going to preach judgment to the nation of Israel. And then, and then Isaiah answered to him, and he said, well, how long do I do that? And the Lord said, till the place is totally destroyed. They will have ears, but they will not be able to hear. They will have eyes, but they will not be able to see. Their hearts will be made dull, gross. The, the King James says, fat, like crusted over, unable to understand. And you have to keep preaching until total destruction upon the nation. That was his mission. The other prophets had something of a similar mission. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Lamentations, Ezekiel in captivity, seeing the awful situation in Jerusalem by way of vision and writing about that. Terrible, terrible situation. But the Lord is taking the words and by analogy saying they apply here as well. So make sure you understand that in Isaiah 6, it was not a predictive prophecy. It was a statement of what was happening at that time. And Jesus is saying, just like then, so now it is the same. They have access to all of this revelation. And they have closed their eyes, closed their hearts, closed their ears, and they do not want anything that I say. You know, it's like, back to my illustration of the mystery of electricity. You know, you might, especially when you're first, uh, if you're not like, you know, if you haven't been exposed to any teaching about it, if you haven't been, you know, if you're not of an engineering kind of mindset, and, uh, you know, you, you see this kind of material for the very first time, it just goes, you know, just over your head. 
You know that feeling of looking at something, you're seeing what you're seeing, but you're not understanding? You're hearing what the person is saying, but you're not grasping what they're saying? That's, that's the kind of thing that happens with spiritual truth when God is, is permitting you to fall under judgment. But when you are able to see and hear and, and understand, not, not perfectly, but somewhat, then God is blessing you with that understanding. And so pray that God will not permit your heart to become hard. Pray that he will open your ears and open your heart and open your eyes and your mind so that you would understand and turn and be healed by the Lord. Uh, There's something here about the hardening of the heart, I think, uh, theologically. Remember, that's introduced to us in Exodus chapter 7. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Bible sometimes says that his heart was hardened. So either God was the agent or Pharaoh was the agent or it was just passive. It just happened. What did God do there? He uh, allowed the sin that was already resident in the heart of Pharaoh to just have its full course. Instead of restraining that sin, he just let it go. And that's how God hardens somebody's heart. He doesn't create fresh sin there. He just simply allows them to go farther than what they would have gone before had he restrained them. By the way, you do know that God restrains you from sin, right? He sets up circumstances that don't allow you to go as far as you might want to go. He gives you parents to keep you from uh, falling into sin. He, he gives you constraints. He keeps you uh, modest in terms of your income so that you're not rich. He gives you a place of service in your life so that you're not like a king that has access to all the different things that you might want to have. He restrains your flesh that way. Sometimes he arranges circumstances so that you cannot do things that you would otherwise fall into. He restrains sin. But when he removes that restraint, like when in 2 Thessalonians he says the the hand of the restrainer is removed, the world is just going to spill into all kinds of ungodliness. It will just run down the broad path to destruction even faster than it's going already pell-mell into the lake of fire. God could overcome that situation, but he does not always do so because of his divine wisdom and justice and and judgment. One time in the Old Testament, God said, I'm going to judge this people with yet other people of a different tongue. I'm going to speak to them. That was in Isaiah 28. In fact, that's what happened in response to how the Jews responded to Jesus in Acts chapter 2, God gave the gift of foreign languages and said, basically, I'm turning to the Gentiles now. That's a judgment on the people who rejected Christ for the time. They had not stumbled so as to fall permanently, of course, as we know. Uh, Then there's finally the principle of divine blessing. Principle of divine blessing. Understand now, if you're hearing what the Lord says here, you, you read that parable and you understood what I said when I explained it and it, it, was, it warmed your heart, so to speak, you were favorable to it, understand that you are a blessed person. You are a blessed person. You say, oh, I'm not, I'm not blessed. I'm not doing that well. Now, if you understand the revelation of God, no matter how 
monetarily poor you are, no matter how poor your health is, no matter how weak your strength is, you are blessed if you understand the word of God. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear, verse 16 says. And why can he say that? He says, because many prophets and righteous men in history desired to see what you see and did not see it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel um, wanted to see. They inquired and searched diligently. What was it that the Spirit of God was doing when he was talking about the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow? They did not understand that. You understand that. You understand that. You are blessed because your eyes see and your ears hear. Now, in Mark chapter 4, let me just read this. This was something I alluded to earlier, so I better close this loop. Mark 4.13, he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? This is the parable of the soils. How then will you understand all the parables? This parable, I don't want to say that it was like a key to unlock the other parables, but like a, like a secret you know, key kind of thing, but rather a foundation upon which you would build. This is like um, Parables 101. Okay, if you don't understand Parables 101 in your college, you're not going to go to 201 or 102 for that matter. You have to understand, this is the model parable. This is like the first one that he taught. This is uh, one that allows you to demonstrate a basic grasp of the things of God and, and shows that you have regeneration, that you have the Spirit of God, and that you have the ability to understand uh, these teachings. It's a very basic, entry-level lesson. Again, the mystery of electricity. If you don't understand what a light switch does, you're not going to go on to anything else. Okay, You need to, you need to have the, the 101 level understanding of, of what's happening before you can move on to the next thing and grasp what the Lord is doing. So the light switch is here, the basics in the parable of the sower and its explanation. Well, I'm going to pretty much stop here. I had another segment on, on uh, expositional preaching of the parables, but I'm not going to uh, bother you with that tonight. Just hang on to that and go away happy that you understand the Word of God because that means you are blessed. You're blessed by God. And that is a marvelous, marvelous thing that he has done. I hope that you are not kind of down at the mouth and uh, gloomy or even depressed as some people get in this holiday season, but uh, happy that you know Jesus and you know why he came and what he's doing in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for this wonderful privilege to understand the word of God and to be, to be reminded that to grasp this word is a blessing. Help us to go here, from here happy in our hearts because of that tonight. And for those that are online, we pray your blessing upon them. Keep them, draw them close to yourself, protect them and us in these days. We pray for Jansen and Kaylee tonight again. Please raise them up to full health. And anyone else who 
we may not be uh, recognizing or remembering that uh, is ill in this day. We pray for my friend I mentioned before who has the surgery tomorrow morning. May that go well. May he awake after the surgery in the afternoon or evening feeling much better than what he did before he went in. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Good night, everyone. Uh, Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to smile upon you and give you peace. We will uh, see you again the next time. And uh, that should be, Lord willing, Wednesday night. We'll be back for prayer and for a little bit more study, probably here in the book of Matthew. So that's what we'll do. Amen. Good night. God bless you.